Well, good morning, everyone. As a church, we're observing the 40 days before Easter known in the church calendar as a season of Lent. Lent's a time of self-examination and repentance. And today we're continuing our Lenten sermon series looking at the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are means of grace. They're opportunities given to us as God's people made in his image in order to grow closer to him and become more like Jesus. So just like when you are cold, you move closer to a heater, or when you're thirsty, you move closer to a sink to get a drink, the spiritual disciplines are ways that we move closer to God as we feel our need for him. So today we'll reflect on the discipline of solitude as we study the prophet of Elijah's life as recorded in 1 Kings 19. So you can follow along in your bulletins, your pew Bibles, or just listen while I read from 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Use it this morning through your Holy Spirit to teach us about who you are and your provision for us. Be present with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite games growing up was the self-touted game of global domination, the game of risk. So if you don't know, it's, it's a game of die rolling and infantry moving where you're trying to wipe every other team off the map. And if I'm being honest, it's probably about 50% skill and 50% luck just how well you can roll those die. And if you know the game of risk, you probably have in your mind the best strategy to win. And of my opinion, if you can win the battle for Australia, you've pretty much won the game because it's such a little stronghold. And so if you win that, if you win Australia, you probably have at least a 50% chance of winning that game. But we all have those games where we win one little battle, but then we tend to lose the war. And it's a common phrase that we've all undoubtedly heard. You may win the battle, but you lost the war. And that's exactly the type of sentiment that the prophet Elijah was feeling in our passage this morning. Our text this morning immediately follows on the heels of Elijah's greatest victory as a prophet. Elijah was a prophet chosen by God to speak his word to the Israelites. He was called at a time when the people of Israel were especially prone to worshiping idols, particularly a god named Baal. And so in this massive confrontation that you may remember, Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal to a standoff on top of Mount Carmel. He set up the whole scenario. The prophets of Baal were on one side with their altar, and the prophets of God, Elijah, was on one side with his altar. And Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and said, whichever God comes down and consumes the sacrifice, burns up the altar, that's the God that the people of Israel should follow. And so you may know how the story went. God showed up, and Baal didn't. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel burned the sacrifice Elijah had prepared, and the people responded by worshiping God and killing the prophets of Baal. And so the queen and king of Israel at the time, Ahab and Jezebel, they were Baal worshipers, and they were none too pleased. And this is where our story picks up this morning. They decided that Elijah must die. Elijah went from being on top of the world, having won the biggest victory of his entire prophetic career, to feeling like he was, had lost it all, like he had lost the entire war. And so this is where we meet Elijah, fleeing from the king and queen of Israel in fear for his life, headed out into the wilderness to be in solitude with God. We can be driven to solitude by a whole host of things, and for Elijah, it was fear for his life that caused him to flee into the desert, which in Scripture is the ultimate place of solitude. So verses 3 and 4 tell us that Elijah, fearing for his life, first flees to Beersheba. He had one companion at that point, his servant, and he leaves him in Beersheba and goes into the desert. He found a tree with a little bit of shade and sat under it and asked God if he might die. At this point, God doesn't respond with a kind word or by answering Elijah's prayer and letting him die. He responds in an astoundingly practical manner. He sends an angel to feed Elijah. Arise and eat, the angel says, providing a cake and a jar of water. 
And after Elijah eats and falls asleep, the angel arrives a second time, this time saying, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So Elijah begins a journey, going in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. 40 days and 40 nights, wandering in the desert, God's provision of food from heaven. Our inclination as readers to draw some connections is well-placed. Israel wandered for 40 years in that same desert. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on that same mountain. God fed his people manna from heaven while they wandered. And Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights being tempted in the wilderness. And 40 days is the length of the season of Lent that we are currently observing. These connections aren't accidental. Elijah is functioning as a second Moses, as a type of Christ. He travels to Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments, the same place where Moses saw God's back as he passed him by. Stories recorded in the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. And so here's the point of that connection. Elijah heads to Mount Horeb, the place where Moses saw God, because if he is to go on living, if he isn't to die, he knows that he needs to see God. Like one of us moving towards a heater because we're cold, Elijah goes to Mount Horeb because he knows that is the place where he can see God. He knows that is the place where he can experience God's presence and his provision. Presence and provision. Elijah's enemies are trying to kill him, and the very mount of God is the only place he knows where he can meet God. The very place where his people's covenant was created, where the nation of Israel was forged. There's no place in the entire history of Israel where God had made himself more present or more real than on top of Mount Sinai. And that's exactly where Elijah goes. So for Elijah, it took being scared for his life. It took fleeing from a crazy and wicked king and queen who were trying to kill him. That's what it took for him to actually go out to be in solitude with the Lord. So what is solitude? In our current society, rarely is a distinction made between being in a state of solitude or being in a state of loneliness. Solitude is, in its simplest form, withdrawal from society and a lack of contact with people. But for our purposes of talking about the Christian discipline of solitude, there's intentionality in solitude. Solitude doesn't happen to you. It's not like being lonely. It isn't a feeling that can overwhelm you if you're alone late at night in your home. It's something that you move intentionally to. Like Elijah moving into the desert, into the wilderness to seek God, solitude is something that as Christians we are called to move into. Removing our contact with people, withdrawing from the busyness of our lives in order to interact with a holy God. So what would it take for you to move into solitude? Elijah got alone with God. It says he lodged himself in a cave. And once he got alone, the word of God came to him. God speaks to Elijah by name and simply asks, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
the question sounds somewhat similar to God calling out to Adam and Eve after they'd sinned in the garden. Where are you? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's response is undoubtedly bold, and it's two-parted. First, he proclaims the desperation of his situation. He says the people have forsaken the covenant. They've thrown down God's altars, and they've killed his prophets. According to Elijah's estimation, the situation in Israel is abysmal. There's no hope for Israel in his eyes. But the second portion of Elijah's response is a little more personal. It comes at the end and speaks more honestly about why Elijah is lodged in a cave in the middle of the wilderness. He says, I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah feels truly alone. That feeling of loneliness wasn't just the case because he was in the desert, but because everyone else had left him. And maybe some of you this morning resonate with Elijah's statement, I, even I, only am left. Maybe some of you even feel so alone that at points you wish you could just die. And there's a brutal honesty in Elijah's response to God's question. He's desperately alone. And while few, if any of us, feel like others are trying to take away our lives, many of us feel this deep loneliness. Thankfully, a pattern that we see throughout Scripture is that when God asks a question and we have the courage to answer, he responds graciously. In the stillness and solitude of a cave in the middle of the desert, God shows up. The text tells us that God tells Elijah to go stand at the edge of the cave at the top of the mountain. God causes a fierce wind to tear through the mountains, an earthquake to shake them, and a fire to consume them. But in each of them, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, the Lord was not there. Then finally, a low whisper. And upon hearing it, Elijah wraps his face in a cloak and he goes outside, knowing that if he, a sinner, saw God, he would die. So he goes out on the edge of the cave of Mount Horeb to meet the living God. So in response to Elijah, the first thing that God provides is his presence. Not in the way that Elijah wanted it or expected it. He wanted a fire to consume his enemies. He wanted an an earthquake to shake the wicked. But instead, God's voice comes in this small whisper. Elijah wanted God's presence in the fire. It's what he just experienced at Mount Carmel. He wanted the wicked king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, to be burned up by the type of fire he had just seen on Mount Carmel. He wanted a show of power. But instead, God showed that his ways are not our ways. God showed Elijah that his presence could come in a low whisper, not just an earthquake and a fire. And that what Elijah needed was that low whisper. This must have been a hard pill for Elijah to swallow, that he wasn't the expert on what he needed, that he wasn't the expert on what Israel needed. And as we look at the story this morning, it's a hard pill for us to swallow as well, that God's response to our prayer might not be the response that we think we need. God asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah responds in the same way. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Exasperated, Elijah repeats the same exact response. The low whisper didn't do it for Elijah. He repeats the exact same response. So first God responded with his presence, and now he responds with his people. God tells Elijah that Hazael the Gentile will help him, that Jehu would be a new king for Israel, and that Elijah would be a new prophet to help him and succeed him, and that there were 7,000 others who would serve the Lord with him. Elijah's needs are met in such a beautiful way by the Lord. Before he even asked, the Lord fed him and nourished him in the desert. When he expressed his loneliness, first God provides his own presence in the form of a low whisper, and then he provided his people, pushing Elijah back into community, saying there's, there's Jehu, there's Elijah, there's Hazael. So nourishment, presence, and people is what Elijah receives. Elijah sought God in solitude. He sought him in the place where he promised he would be, in the place where he had always been, and God met him in a more profound way than Elijah, who initially just wanted everything to end, who initially just wanted to die, could have ever expected. Solitude enhances every aspect of our lives. It enhances every other Christian discipline. As we talked about life together and prayer in the last two weeks, we see that solitude includes both of these things. As we see God in solitude moving away from others and the distractions of the world, we experience God's presence. We're nourished by him and we experience his provision. And it's then that we're able to move outside of ourselves towards others. Just like Elijah being fed by God and then hearing his whisper in the desert before God pushed him back out into the world with a community of saints around him. Our natural temptation as people who are so plugged into this world, with our families, our jobs, our hobbies, our connections, our social media accounts, is to never really spend time in solitude with God. It's much harder to spend time in solitude with God than it is to scroll through a social media feed. And when was the last time you spent solitude with God? When was the last time you sat around with nothing else? No phone, no screen, no book, no distraction. You don't need a holy mountain in the desert to seek God in solitude. Just a few moments of quietness. What would it take you to put yourself in this position, a position where you're alone with God? Many of us are deeply lonely and all of us long for community. But we must spend time with God in solitude practicing this discipline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor, put it this way. Many people seek fellowship because they are afraid to be alone. Because they cannot stand loneliness, they are driven to seek the company of other people. But the person who comes into community because he is running away from himself isn't really seeking community at all, but is using community as a distraction to forget his loneliness for a brief period of time.
During my first year of seminary, I sat in one of the seminary counseling offices chatting with one of the counselors there. As he listened to my story, he remarked, Tyler, you seem to have a deep sense of not okayness. And that's a made-up word, not okayness. But it describes me, and it probably describes a lot of you as well. That when we sit with ourselves, when we sit just with us, with nothing to distract us, with nothing to do and no one to be with, something seems not okay. We aren't okay with being in solitude because we aren't okay with ourselves. And maybe it's because we feel like we failed our parents or we failed our spouses or our children or our employers in some deep way. Maybe we can't sit by ourselves because we're afraid of what God thinks of us. Maybe it's because we feel inferior to those around us in the world who things seem to be going so well for them. Maybe it's because we've experienced some deep trauma. Maybe it's simply because we don't like ourselves. Whatever the reason is for you this morning, whatever causes that sense of not okayness, the thing that makes it hard for you to sit in solitude with God, for you to sit without any distractions, whatever the lie is that you believe about yourself, the shame that you feel when you look in the mirror, whatever the lie is, that someone important told you who was supposed to build you up but instead tore you down. Whatever that thing is, God has a low whisper for that. I don't know what God's whisper to Elijah was, what he said, what his words were. I don't even know if the whisper was something coherent that Elijah could have understood. But I do know that he still speaks to us today through his scripture, through his spirit and prayer, and through his people, the church. And I know that God has a low whisper for each and every one of us. And that low whisper speaks to the deepest and darkest longings of your soul for love and belonging, value and meaning. He has a low whisper for each and every one of us. Christians aren't unique in seeing this need for solitude and self-acceptance. There's a famous neuroscientist and atheist named Sam Harris who's touted the need for meditation over and over again in his lectures. He's touted the need for self-discovery. And it's tempting to go after this self-acceptance in our own lives, on our own terms. Solitude is, is, after all, in its simplest form, just seclusion and isolation from everyone else. But what we believe as Christians, what we confess as true and see as true in the story of Elijah, is that solitude is in in fact not just about accepting the words from within, but letting someone else speak from the outside. We need someone outside of ourselves to come to us and speak truth to us about who we are and about who God is. And this is the gospel. The gospel tells us the truth about who we are. That by ourselves we're not okay. That the feeling of not okayness that you have, that what makes it hard for you to sit in solitude, is real. But just like Elijah in the desert, we're weak and sinful and needy and we come to God. But the gospel also tells us the truth about our Heavenly Father. That He loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us and that He's called us beloved. 
And so we, when we sit in solitude, when we take the time to go and be with the Lord, he meets us. Just like we saw in the story of Elijah, first he nourishes us, and then he provides his presence. And then he provides his word in the form of a low whisper. And then he provides his people. And so as Henry Nouwen puts it, when we spent time in solitude, we can become present to others by reaching out to them, not greedy for attention and affection, but offering our own selves to help build a community of love. Solitude doesn't pull us away from our fellow human beings, but instead makes real fellowship possible. And so may I be so bold as to challenge you this week to spend a little bit of time in solitude, even just 5, 10, 20 minutes, in total solitude. And my prayer is that in that moment, the same God who came and fed Elijah, the same God who whispered to him, and the same God who provided him a, him a community when he felt so alone, that that God would come to you, that he would nourish you, that he would speak to the longings of your heart in a low whisper, and that then he would push you back into community, the church, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me pray for us. Father, you are a good, good father. You delight to give us, your children, what we need. We ask humbly for you to provide for each of us this morning what we need. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and join in our passing of the peace. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Before we come to this family meal, let's uh, take a few moments to greet each other with the peace of Christ.